Great uh, sermon and fellowship this morning, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to fill in for Pastor Tedrick, who finally, believe it or not, uh, is taking a vacation. He and Michelle are in Puerto Rico. So uh, I will impersonate him if I can today. And uh, he said, any subject. And so I thought uh, that I would talk about the problem of evil since, uh, yeah, it's not autobiographical by intent, but uh, I... Really, the problem of, of evil and pain and suffering, uh, I know that, you know, if you, if you haven't gone through um, pain and suffering and wondered about some of the questions that we'll be talking about very briefly here, then you're probably not alive. Um, you know, whether you're young or old, uh, you have thought about these questions. One of the things that I, I have noticed is uh, older people tend, older Christians tend to ask these questions less. Why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? Uh, younger people tend to uh, ask these questions a little more, especially when they first encounter uh, challenges. It seemed, it seemed that life to some extent, was uh, secure and, and uh, future hopeful, and then suddenly it's not. And as, as things begin to, dominoes begin to fall, people wonder, how can God be both good and omnipotent? And that's the problem of evil, in a nutshell. The problem of evil is how can those two things be true, both logically and metaphysically? If God is all good, then surely he wants evil to be eliminated. But evil isn't eliminated, at least yet. Why did he allow evil in the first place if he's omnipotent? And so either he's not all-powerful, he would like to limit evil. He would like to get rid of evil entirely, but he can't. Or if he can but doesn't, then he's not good. Now, this is not a new question. This is not, the problem of evil is as old as, uh, as humanity. You look back at uh, the, uh, the case that Yahweh brings before Israel in Isaiah 59 Assuming this very question, God answer, uh, or, uh, Isaiah answers in God's name, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. That's really those two things, isn't it? Sovereignty and goodness. Does it... He, it's not that he, he, he doesn't hear, he's not aware of our troubles, that it doesn't concern him. Uh, he is good, and it's also not that his, his arm is too short. Isn't that a great picture? Uh, God, God's arm is too short to say, just can't quite reach us. And this is really the problem of 
transcendence and imminence. Either God is too far away and doesn't care, or he really cares, but he can't do anything about it. And these end up becoming whole theologies, whole world views in themselves. When Paul was talking to the philosophers in Athens, Luke tells us that the two major groups represented there were the Stoics and the Epicureans. Now, the Stoics believed not only was God near, but actually we're all part of God. Uh, God is the world, the world is God, and therefore everything that happens must happen necessarily exactly as it does. Fatalism. There is no divine superintendence because the whole thing is divine. The world is divine, and therefore nature simply as divine unfolds as its organic life fatally, deterministically intends. The Epicureans said, on the other hand, no, uh, God is so far removed from us, he doesn't care. The gods on Mount Olympus are having a ball. They, They are blissfully ignorant of what happens to us. They couldn't care less. If you were as transcendent and self-satisfied with your own being that you didn't need others, you didn't need human beings, these foul creatures here below, why would you, you know, why would you ever enter into their problems? And at the time of the Reformation, there were these two groups as well. There was a flourishing because these texts from these two schools were translated for the first time in the Renaissance. Uh, And people began to read them and they, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, uh, wrote a whole essay, I am an Epicurean. Uh, People began to really jump on one or the other. Today, I think we have something very similar. We have... uh, Actually, a lot of people who don't realize that they're Stoics and Epicureans at the same time. Um, If you want to put it sort of in a kind of loosely uh, contemporary way, think of the the Stoics as pantheists, everything is God, and the Epicureans as atheists. Now, they weren't actually atheists. They believed the gods may exist, but it doesn't matter. They were practical atheists. Now, when it comes to the problem of of evil, then, you have to ask the the Stoic, what what is the problem? You have a a problem with evil, and and the Stoic will say, well, actually, evil is a necessary part of the good. Yin and yang. You know, you need the whole divine nature needs cold and hot, spicy and hot. British food, <laughs> uh, top and bottom, uh, you know, 
uh, wet and dry. You, the, it's just the way things are. You kind, of, you kind of need that. So obviously, if you take that pantheistic view, new age we would call it today, if you take that kind of view, there is no problem of evil. And then you, with, the, with the Epicureans, it's, everything is chance. They believe everything happens because of random swerving of atoms. Stuff happens. And so their philosophy was, don't worry, be happy. You know? if, you, if, you just, if you just don't depend on the gods intervening, and that's what makes you anxious, actually. If you just, just say, you know, this is one of their slogans on their coffee mugs, uh, good things are easy to get and bad things are easy to endure. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I, 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 am, I am confronted with the Stoics and the Epicureans, at the end of the day, they sound like the same person. Because they're basically saying, you know, don't worry, be happy, be independent, don't these, these things happen either by chance or by necessity. Uh, that's, the, that's the explanation. The problem of evil is not a problem unless you're a Christian. When people bring up the problem of evil, they can't, within, within the worldviews that they presuppose... They don't even have a problem of evil. They don't realize how much they're borrowing on Christian capital when they say, how can there be a God who is good and omnipotent if there's evil in the world? That seems like a contradiction to them. And a good thing to say back to people at that point is, how do you know God is good and omnipotent? And it just helped them to see they're presupposing the Christian God. See, it only made, the, the, so much of the Bible is a is a running dialogue. Even a you know the uh, the Jewish people love to argue with God. <laughs> God put them on trial. He they put him on trial. It's like one long courtroom uh, dispute between God and Israel. And uh, that is so unlike any other religion because it's not personal. Not personally, God isn't personally involved. You can't take him to court. <laughs> you know, you can't take you to court. It's principles, fatalistic principles or pure chance. Not a personal triune God who loves the world, created the world, and created the world good and guides it by his goodness and omnipotence, and yet there is evil in it. You see, it becomes a problem only if you have the Christian God. That's why some people will give up the Christian God. Some supposedly Christian theologians will give up the Christian God. They'll, they'll, They'll either give up his omnipotence, or they'll give up his goodness. And you look at the world religion, Buddhism, what's, what's your problem? Well, you don't have a problem. The problem is that you think you have a problem. 
uh, its attachment, its craving, its desire. That's the problem. If you just stop desiring, you won't be disappointed. Uh, evil is a, an illusion. If you talk to uh, a Hindu, they'll say it's karma. You know, when I'm uh, in India, it's a, it's amazing to hear hear story after story after story of you can't actually help someone who is a victim, for instance, of a crime because they're getting what their karma deserves and you're keeping them from enduring that karma so that they can go through it and hopefully get out better on the other side. Uh, They don't have a problem. Like, we have a problem with, with evil. We actually have a problem because we believe in a God who is sovereign and good. And yet, There's evil in the world. Prayer presupposes the goodness and the sovereignty of God. If God weren't both good and sovereign, there would be no prayer in the world. And so even people who aren't Christians presuppose the biblical God when they pray. It's part of natural religion, recognition uh, that uh, all people share in the image of God. They pray. Why, why pray? Why pray to a God who is either not good? Why, why on earth would you pray to a, a, uh, a horrifying dictator who loves to see children die? But then why would you pray to a loving and good God who can't do anything about it? You know, it just says, I feel your pain kind of God. Uh, what, kind of, what kind of rescue do you, do you need when you're in a, in a uh, burning building, you're, you're, you're locked in the elevator? Uh, a firefighter who, 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 you know, comes and sort of opens the door and slips in and stands with you, the doors close again, and, and he puts his arm around you and he says, I'm here for you. Yeah, I need you to not be here for me right now. I mean, the way you're here for me is by being out there, uh, rescuing me. <laughs> you need to break down the, ele- the doors of the elevator and pull me out, and rescue me, not, not be part of the entrapment. I mean, that, it's the thing. God can't save us. From evil, if God is trapped in it himself. At the end of the day, at the end of the, there are good arguments. I do some of this, some of my students are here, uh, do this in class, won't uh, uh, bore you with the details here. There are really good arguments uh, of a logical kind with respect to this problem of evil. In fact, J.L. Mackey in the 1950s and 60s, uh, he came up with the, the, the logical argument that became the standard view that atheists and skeptics said is unbreakable. This is the, the, this is the view that basically says uh, what I just said. God is 
omnipotent or good, but he can't be both. And so the whole idea of God is self-contradictory. It is those views, goodness and sovereignty, those views that cancel each other out. You don't even need an argument from the outside. Uh, But in the 70s, Reformed philosopher Alvin Plantinga uh, killed that dead, and it's generally recognized by logicians, philosophers, that he was victorious uh, in his, his defeat of that. So many things are presupposed, even by atheists, when they talk about the problem of evil. They have to use our doctrine of God to try to defeat belief in God. So there are really good arguments out there. Some really thoughtful Christian uh, apologists doing great work on this question. But here's my point, and this is what I'll I'll, uh, uh, focus on for the remaining 10 minutes or so. At the end of the day, Christianity does not offer a satisfying answer to the problem of evil. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can uh, kill that argument, then that argument, then that argument, but you keep going back and back and back, and finally you get the question, well, why did he let the devil in the garden in the first place? Well, why did, why did he, you know, there, you, can, you can have infinite regress of questions assuming that you can know the mind of God, which you can't, and that was, by the way, the defeater of J.L. Mackey's argument. Uh, we, we really don't know the mind of God. But there is a historically satisfying answer to the problem of evil that no other religion comes close to. All of the other religious views, I haven't taken the time to, I just grazed over it, all of the other religious views... I said, can't even get to the table to have a debate over the problem of evil because they don't have the kind of God who could provoke the problem of evil in the first place. They don't believe in evil. They don't believe evil is real. Uh, they believe that, or they believe that evil is a necessary part of the emanation of God. But Christians tell a story. This, this, is, this is the point. Um, other religions and philosophies offer speculations. The Bible answers this question by telling a story. It's a story that God is passionately moving us into. And, and I, wa- I want to just touch on a couple of examples here and then uh, quit so we can leave uh, some questions. Um, the first, obviously, you know, whenever we talk about the problem of evil and we go to the Bible and the, the, the grand story, we think of the book of Job, right? Um, there at the very beginning of the book, God is bragging about Job. Well, you know, you're... Your servants just obey you because you promised them all kinds of trinkets and things. And no, 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 you don't know what piety is. You lost it. Have you considered my servant Job? I mean, he's an he's a an example 
of that kind of piety. And uh, Satan has to get permission from God, and God gives it. Why? Because there's a larger story going on here. It's the trial between you know, Satan versus Yahweh. You see, all the way back in the Garden of Eden with, with uh, the, the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. That's the story behind all of the stories. Now, Job didn't get the memo. That first chapter was unknown to him. That's for us. It's the narrator telling us, you know, that this all happened behind the scenes. Well, like Job, we don't get the memo. We're not told what's happening behind the scenes, but you can pretty well guarantee it's part of that larger story. The story behind the stories. And the decisive moment in the story is Job's confession in chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see Him for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart faints within me. An argument might appeal to some people. It does. Some people need an argument. But I think this is, this is what we all need. <laughs> what we all need is to hear a better story than the stories that are floating around. After he had heard the story, after all of, the, you know, all of his friends were giving prosperity theology and all this sort of, uh, you know, if you, if you uh, just cough up whatever sin it is, Job, this is not hard. You, you confess that sin, you repent, you turn away from it. God will restore your fortunes threefold. You'll have more cattle than you ever imagined. Just, you know, uh, if you just had more faith, Job. Well, here's what I think the Lord is teaching you through this, Job. All these people who think they know the mind of the Lord, and they're working off of this kind of karma idea. You get what's, you know, it'll come back to you. And that was a big argument that Job's friends made. That he, 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 Job, you have it coming. But even now, even now, your repentance can suffice, and, and God will turn away. God will turn away these circumstances from you. Just believe more. Just do more. But the appearances were all wrong. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I don't remember you being there. And also, under the old covenant, there was a kind of prosperity gospel. If you obey your father and mother, you'll live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, if you. If you obey me, then uh, everybody will live under his own fig tree and have vineyards, and it'll be, it'll be paradise. If you disobey me, I'll close the wombs. The earth will not give its fruit. I'll take away my blessings. Leprosy was a sign of 
sin in the camp. Okay, so you did have, you did have certain blessings and curses vividly demonstrated in God's warnings to His people tied to their behavior in relation to the covenant. But that was the old covenant. That doesn't work that way anymore. In this new age, between Christ's two advents, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike and, and makes His sun shine on the good and the bad. There is no difference. This is common grace. But there's also common curse. Non-Christians, non-Christians can be just as blessed outwardly, temporally, just as smart, just as creative, just as productive as Christians, common grace. But Christians can be just as uh, susceptible to disease and to poverty. We have, a, we have a common curse and yet common grace. Encountering a man blind from birth, the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like Job's counselors, the baseline theology was, let's track this down to what we see. We can, we can know what is hidden by what is apparent. And Jesus says, no, you can't. No, you can't. That may have been in the old covenant. Now, God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, what you don't, there's a bigger story going on here than the blind man. Blind man is a, is a character in God's novel. <laughs> and that story, that big story, he wants to bring all of us, like Job, like everyone, into that story. I know, I know. That means kind of going to probably have Job moments. That's part of him bringing us into the story. And with that background, we come to Jesus' climactic sign in the gospel uh, of John, um, where Jesus raises Lazarus, but it's really not about Jesus raising Lazarus as much as the confession uh, that is provoked before he raises Lazarus. And this is the last example that I'll give, and I'll, we can we can have discussion. Um, <clears throat> Mary, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was home base for Jesus' Bethany mission. Uh, for for his his mission, he was so close to them that Mary and Martha were discouraged that Jesus wouldn't come running when Lazarus was sick. Word was sent that Lazarus, whom you love, is at death's door, and and we read, and so Jesus stayed another three days. <laughs> That's kind of odd. Uh, what? Why? I mean, you'd say, so Jesus came running. No. So Jesus read a newspaper. It, sound, it sounded to, to the sisters and Lazarus, who was still 
alive somewhat, that uh, he was callous. He had healed people he never knew. Just like that. Why wouldn't he come running? And so Jesus says to his disciples, uh, okay, now, now it's time. He's dead. Uh, now it's time to, to, uh, to go to Lazarus. Everyone's confused. Ever feel like that? You're in the middle of it. You have no idea, have no idea what this mess means. Um, okay, does he even care? Is he good or is he omnipotent? Does one of them have to go? How can I hold these two things together? But Jesus announces Lazarus' death to his disciples, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. That is the key, I think, to the whole passage. It's not Lazarus come forth. That's what we put all the emphasis on is Lazarus. But really, it's believe in me. We begin to see that the story behind this story is God in Christ vanquishing evil. I don't think even in eternity we're going to get the problem of evil. It's, it's too much for our little minds. Who, who has known the mind of the Lord? But we can be sure, we can be sure that He is bringing all things in line with the plan of sending the Son He promised to Adam and Eve, who will crush the serpent's head. That do, you, that do you believe? I'm glad for your sakes. Yes, I love Lazarus, but I'm glad for your sakes that I stayed here and let him die so that you would believe. It's okay to be confused. <laughs> the disciples certainly were going back to Jerusalem, I mean, Jesus was going to go, but when he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going back for a crucifixion. And the, the, the Pharisees are really seeking to kill him. And so Jesus says, okay, now it's time to go. Let's go to Bethany. And Thomas, blessed Thomas, sarcastic Thomas, says, uh, yeah, I think, that, I think that would be great. Let's go die with him. And uh, they finally arrive with all the data at her disposal. Martha could only be completely discouraged and confused. Why did he not care about Lazarus? Why didn't he come running when word reached him that Lazarus was dying? He could have... He could have stopped it. And that's Martha's first word to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. My brother whom you love. How many times do we, do we pray that? Do we say that? It's in some of the songs, the psalms that we, we sing. If you had been here, this evil would not have occurred. For everyone except for Jesus, the story's about Lazarus. 
Everybody's talking about Lazarus. But even now, Martha says, in the sign of her faith, even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. See, the baseline assumption here is Martha is saying, you, have, you, you and God are really tight. I'm not sure how this works. I, you know, I don't have a Christology to offer or anything. But you are really close to God, and whatever you ask God, He gives you every time. But do you see the distinction? There's God, and then there's you. You're like a great prophet. You're an emissary. You're a, you know, in the same, near, near this very story in chapter 14, uh, Philip says, okay, this is really great. We've seen great signs and wonders performed by God through you, but now show us the Father. Oh, my goodness, Philip, how long have I been with you? And you still don't realize. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. See, pushing the disciples to realize Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. He's not just a servant of God. He is God the Lord. Faith in Him is the whole point of the story. And so... Martha is brought to Jesus to see him finally as the end and not the means. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Just as he told Philip, I and the Father are one. I'm God. Now here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am not just a means to your brother's resurrection and he'll go on and die again. I am the resurrection. This is why this is happening. Just as the man born blind was, not because of something he did or his parents did, but for the mighty works of God to be displayed. Everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. See, at first she had, she had said, yeah, I I'm, a, I, I'm a Pharisee. I be of course, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Yes, I believe Lazarus will rise in the, in the, the, the age to come, in the great resur resurrection. Is this a good time for a theology exam? And it's easy for us, even if we have good theology, to sometimes think, you know, Jesus is an end, a means to an end. My health, my happiness, my life, everything kind of going reasonably well. That's the point. <laughs> and if you'd only been there, God, when I experienced that, right? But that's not... That, that's, that, has it, that has it backwards. Whatever we go through, 
It is for the mighty works of God to be displayed so that we would believe. We don't know why specific. You can't point to But the main reason everything happens to us is for that reason. The confession of Martha was the center of this. That was the point, not raising Lazarus. That was the point, bringing her to that confession, bringing her to that faith. Jesus said it at the beginning with the disciples. I'm glad for your sakes that he died so that you may believe. So that you may believe. So that you may believe. So that you may... He is good and sovereign, gathering the elect from every nation, saving us from our wretched condition, bringing us to himself. So that we may believe and trust in him and have life in his name. And that's why all things work together for good. We've got to be careful how we just kind of throw that around when people are, are suffering. It's, it's true. <laughs> it's, uh, but it, it, it's not. All things are good. It's not, let's not treat suffering and terrible things that, that come our way or happen on the world stage. Let's never treat them as, well, it's good because it's God's providence. No, God's providence includes bad things. God is sovereign over bad things, too. He limits how far bad things can go. But we do know this. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. They must. But not because of some principle, but because a person is working all these threads, even the dark threads, into a beautiful tapestry. My, um, my brother's been in the uh, hospital, almost died. He's been two, in the I, ICU for two weeks, finally moved out. But uh, Some of you uh, old-timers may remember him. He used to come regularly, um, hasn't in, in years. And It was Easter when I read to him 1 Corinthians 15 just this past week. And uh, I said, do you believe this? And he nodded. <laughs> And then over the loudspeaker, Catholic Hospital, over the loudspeaker, let's take a pause for a meditation since it's Easter. It's like homeroom. And, uh, and I, I was, uh, Adam, was my son, was with me, and I said, okay, buckle your seatbelt for this. And just as I thought, this, what Easter, uh, here's an Easter reflection all of us can, can embrace. Think, okay, first of all, if, if everybody can believe it, you're already on the wrong... Um, <laughs> The sunset is as beautiful as the sunrise. And what Easter means is that we can always have hope that tomorrow will be better than today. And Adam and I looked at each other and said, what, hooey? Now, that's, that, is, that is what our culture, stoic or epicurean, just be happy or... or don't let it get to you, don't let it bother you, or it doesn't really exist. It really existed. Jesus snorted like a horse. That's the, the two verbs that are used there that are so watered down in all the English versions. Um, Jesus was deeply troubled. He wasn't deeply troubled. He was raging. Same, same word that was used for the disciples, terror at, the, at being drowned in the sea and the waves. 
even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus in about two minutes, he wept. And he wept like one of those people you see on TV in the Middle East during a funeral, throwing themselves on the casket. But because Jesus rose, not Lazarus, because Jesus rose, death is our last enemy. And its sting has been removed because the curse of the law has been taken away. So death for us is no longer dying because of our sin. We no longer look at our troubles, our prosperity, or our poverty, or any circumstances that we're going through and say, this must mean that God doesn't love me or care for me, or this must mean that I am not following the rules, or this must mean... No. What, you know whatever God is doing. You know this much. You know this much. He's getting you to Martha's confession. He's bringing you... He's giving you an opportunity to turn away from all those goods that you think are ultimate to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Because that's forever. Not another couple of years that Lazarus you know, may have had. That's forever. Reconciled with God. A friend. No longer an enemy. How do we know this? How do we know that's true? How do we? You have to tell a story. <laughs> you have to tell the story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. You have to, you have to, it's a story. It's a story that unfolds. Evil is real, but evil is vanquished. And we know this because God the Father raised the Son from the dead and is now immune to all evil, to all circumstances that anyone could interpret as they did when he was hanging on the cross as God abandoning him. God has not abandoned you. God is not forgetting you. Whatever is happening, you can't, you can't interpret the hand of God. You can't draw a straight line from, I did this, so I, this must be why. You can't do that. But you do have the right to draw a straight line from Romans 8, 28, to your circumstances and say, whatever it is I'm going through, whatever it is, I know this much, I know this much. He's getting me deeper and deeper into his story. And further and further away from mine. I'm sorry, I didn't, I did it again. <laughs> I am so long-winded. Um, I didn't leave time uh, for, for questions. We, we actually have two minutes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I distinguish between, uh, you know, ha ha happily, people aren't consistent. You know, um, if, you, if you really take some of those lines to their ultimate conclusion, you wouldn't pray. I mean, Arminians will say, well, if you're a Calvinist, why would you pray? Well, no, what do you mean? If you, if you are an Arminian, why would you pray? Say, uh, Lord, please bring my, my brother to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that presupposes Calvinism, <laughs> that he actually can. 
uh, he can actually do that. Uh, I believe that Roger Nicole used to say, uh, we're all Calvinists on our knees. I think that's a little bit cheeky, um, a little bit not intended to be that way, but it, it, can, it can sound snobbish. We have to be very careful that let's, when we're talking to people, I think let's not talk to them about, until we get to know them very well at least, talk to them about Calvinism and Arminianism and Pelagianism and so forth, but listen to their problem and then talk to them about Christ. And I think that we'll find that either because of God's common grace and made in the image of God, they presuppose a God who is good and sovereign anyway, despite their professed theology, and the Holy Spirit may be working in them in that very moment through what you're saying and through your listening to bring them to the point where they say, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We, don't want, we, we want to win people, not arguments. <laughs> One more, and then we can, can call it a day. All right. Well, then let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you Father and to know that it is our Father in heaven who reigns over all things and that you have given the government of your kingdom your, in, into the hands of a man with glorified, scarred hands who has seen more trouble than we will ever know, who was treated more unjustly than we ever were, who was abandoned even by you truly so that we would never be abandoned. Help us, Father, to throw our anchor into him, to trust him, and to be confident because of his resurrection that after this momentary affliction, we will be raised, and it doesn't even compare with the weight of glory that shall be 